Our scripture lesson this morning is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 12 through 28. Uh, If you would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 32. Listen now for God's word to us. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his, bro- all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering the fields. The man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him coming from a distance, and before he came near to to them, he conspired, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, carrying gum and balm and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, he's our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The 37th chapter of Genesis begins the story of Joseph. It is Genesis' last story and its longest story. For 25 entire chapters prior to chapter 37, Genesis is occupied with the story of three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who receive uh, an improbable promise from God to bless them, 
to make a great people out of them, even though Abram and Sarah are of no special pedigree or qualifications. Well, the birth of Jacob's 12 sons and his settling in the land that was promised to his grandfather suggests that this promise is well on its way to being fulfilled. But that's not the end of the story. Not by a long shot. In fact, by the end of this part that we just heard, that promise is on its way out of town after being tossed down a hole in the ground into a pit. The pit. The pit is where we find Joseph in this story. In biblical terminology, the pit is a place of utter desolation, and abandonment, fear, even death. The Psalms speak of the pit. Psalm 69 says, Do not let the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Psalm 88 says, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help. The pit. Watching the events in Charlottesville, Virginia unfold yesterday, I felt a gnawing fear that our country is being swallowed up by the pit before our very eyes. Chants of blood and soil, swastika signs, Heil Hitler salutes. These are not things I ever thought I would see with my own eyes. And the sight of them yesterday filled me with a sensation that something very evil is trying to close its mouth over us again. Because this is a pit that I have spent literally my entire life believing we had already climbed out of. Yesterday's events showed just how much of an illusion that has been. And observing the failure of our president to condemn racists as racists, even as members of his own party did just that, makes me fear that we will not have the help we need in trying to climb out of this pit. The pit is where we find Joseph in this story, where he is just dumped by his own family like a broken TV screen down a, down a ditch. On one level, it's just a pit. It's a hole in the ground. It's a cistern for catching winter rains. It's deep. It's empty. There's no way to get out of it. But in another sense, it is the pit, the place he is meant to die, alone of starvation and dehydration. There's no help coming. Nobody's going to come bury him either. The pit is closing its mouth over Joseph. And it feels a little bit today like we're in there with him. Recall, this story is supposed to have already been over. Verse 1 sounds like an ending, doesn't it? Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. Fade to black, cue the music, roll the credits. Maybe add a postscript, a genealogy as a, as a way to demonstrate that the days of wandering are over and the days of settling are just now beginning. The days of settling and comfort and multiplying, enjoying the fruits of the struggle for future generations. You know today that that's not how it works out. You know the struggle isn't over. The promised land is not the end of the story, but its beginning. The posture of a sojourner better suits the faithful than the posture of the settler. It always has. The watchword of the story of biblical faith is not soil. It's go. The go 
of God to Abram and Sarah that gets repeated over and over again down the generations until it issues as the go from Jesus to his own disciples. The life of a disciple begins in a place of promise, but it doesn't stop there. The promises of baptism, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever, these are the starting gun for the life of faith, not the finish line. The promises that we make in joining a church are all active verbs. Seek, share, give. They're not passive. They're not settled. The promised land is not the end of the story. Because faith's promises are lived in an ongoing story of relationships. The church that receives these baptized children, that welcomes new members, is a community, and communities are constantly changing. Not always for the good. The children who were at vacation Bible school this week heard the story of the Apostle Paul. I dressed up in a costume, I told him the story every day. It was a lot of fun. A regular feature of the story of the Apostle Paul is the divisions and the conflict in the churches that he started. In Corinth, the children learned, everybody wanted to be in charge and nobody wanted to serve. In Galatia, they learned that the whole church was just conflicted about everything from top to bottom. They learned, in other words, that conflict has been a part of the life of the church from the very beginning, and that if it were not, most of the New Testament, the letters to those conflicted churches, would have had no occasion to be written. The church is conflicted like any family. For Jacob's family, life in the promised land is infected by a pernicious kind of conflict because some members of the family hate, hate another member and cannot speak peaceably to him. I hope this hasn't happened in your family, but I suspect that it might. Maybe you wouldn't use the word hate to speak of another family member, or maybe you would. In any case, I suspect it's a common enough occurrence in our families that members cease to speak to one another. Are there people in your family that you just don't speak to anymore? People who don't speak to you? Or are you the intermediary, as I have been, between members of your own family who will not speak to each other? It's painful. Religious sociologist and Virginian Diana Butler-Bass, who has spoken here at Fourth Church before, shared this on Facebook yesterday afternoon. I called my brother to account tonight for his racism and white supremacist views. He defended the Nazis in Charlottesville. I couldn't stand it any longer, and I am sad to say that I no longer have a brother. It's painful. And in some families, silence is the least of it. My parents tell me that when we were little, my older brother tried to push me out of a moving car. I don't remember that, <laughs> although I do remember the day from our childhood when he sprayed WD-40 industrial lubricant into my eyes because I wouldn't give him a matchbox car that I was playing with. Family members can do much worse things to one another than not speak. Joseph's brothers have a plan to kill him, fling his body into a cistern, and then make up a story about the murder. It's a conspiracy to commit three crimes in one. The murder, yes, but then they will deprive him of a proper burial, and then they will lie to their parents about what happened. It makes you wish they just had a can of WD-40 on hand. What they do have is Reuben. Reuben, the oldest. Reuben proposes deleting the murder part of the plot 
He knows that shedding another person's blood is a no-no. Cain killed Abel and was driven away. Noah was told by God quite clearly that the cost of taking a human life is another human life, is your own life. So the plan becomes, under Reuben's guidance, to just throw him into the pit alive because Reuben thinks he'll be able to come back later and pull him out. Reuben is underestimating the power of evil and of conspiracy because there's also Judah. Judah has a better idea. Judah sees a financial advantage to be gained here. He sees these traitors on the horizon and suggests that why just hate somebody when you could make some money on it? You can sell your brother. You don't just have to murder him out of spite. So murder him, strip him, fling him down into a hole, lie about his death, sell him. They're just layers and layers and layers of evil to this plot against Joseph. But evil isn't the end of the story either. Many biblical mentions of the pit speak not of its horrors, but of the intention of God to pull us out of it. The language of Job in the Old Testament is particularly resonant. Job speaks of how God redeemed my soul from going down to the pit. How God indeed does all these things twice, three times with mortals to bring back their souls from the pit so that they may see the light of life. The pit is not the end of the story. Joseph is brought back from the pit by a nomadic band of traitors. It's it's a really confusing turn of events at the end of the story, as confusing for us as readers as it must have been for Joseph's brothers. They've just agreed over lunch, no less, to sell their brother to these Ishmaelite traders they see coming their way, but before they can polish off the potato salad, he's taken and sold from right under their noses by some other group of people. Joseph's brothers can't account, or they don't account, for this variable. Other evil actors operating on their own agenda outside the sphere of the brothers' control. They're not in charge, and they don't know it. As wicked schemes do, their conspiracy buckles beneath the weight of its own complication, and then its legs are definitively kicked out from underneath it by other actors that the conspirators never considered. Commentator R.R. Reno, writing about this story, suggests that this last part demonstrates something about what he calls the self-defeating nature of human sin. He writes, The brothers can't sustain their murderous consensus. Delays brought by both indecision and the allure of a good meal give time for complications to emerge. The greed of others ends up thwarting both Reuben's and Judas' plans. In the end, the brothers, who at first seem so clear-minded in their wicked plan to kill Joseph, are entirely confused about what has happened to him. They are, and I love this phrase, bumbling participants in an evil sequence of events. Evil is not the end of the story because the perpetrators of it are bumbling participants in an evil sequence of events. They can't see far enough into the future to bring their schemes to success. They're not as smart as they think they are. They don't control the variables they think they control. They're distracted by lunch. This is how I am choosing to view the people that we watched march through Charlottesville on Friday night and yesterday morning as bumbling participants in an evil sequence of events. I choose to laugh at them even as at the same time I am moved to horror 
by the things coming out of their mouths and the unholy things promised in their chants and in their signs. Perhaps it rings as overly confident so close to this march, but I am holding on to this conviction, and and it's worth quoting at length from R.R. Reno again, evil cannot achieve lasting form in a coherent, workable plan. That is why there is always something darkly, pathetically comic about wickedness. The Unabomber in his Montana cabin penning long diatribes. Hitler dreaming of the glory of the Reich in his Berlin bunker in the final weeks of the war. The propaganda machine of the old Soviet empire churning out slogans for the workers. And let us add our own example, the organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville desperately defending a statue of Robert E. Lee. He continues, and this is an important point, Given the pointless death and suffering that's caused, the images rightly horrify. I was horrified yesterday. I know you were too. But those images also amuse in their surreal absurdity. This, he concludes, is a deep fact about evil. It's bumbling, comical, self-defeating character. In other words, evil is a joke. Evil is a joke. The alt-right is a joke. Take America back is a joke. The militia is a joke. Those white shields and black helmets are a joke. The torches and the salutes are a joke. The swastikas and the Confederate flags are a joke. Racism is a joke. White supremacy is a joke. The KKK is a joke. And anyone who is unable to condemn all of this by name is a joke. So what do we do? church of Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you, laughs in the face of this evil. We laugh even as we stand firm in opposition to it. Even as we confess in prayer our own complacency. Even our own active participation in these schemes. We laugh even as we pray for peace and for the conversion of racist hatred. We laugh even as we give ourselves, our own hands and our own feet to the struggle for the gospel's vision of all people as beloved children of God, no matter their race. We laugh as we sing a more beautiful song about accepting one another, as we tell a truer story, and as we recite a more powerful creed, a creed about communion, a creed about forgiveness, a creed about resurrection, a creed about life everlasting. This is what we do. This is our worship. This is our resistance to hatred and evil. And this is no joke. Amen.
Let us affirm together what we believe using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.